A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously on Father Wants Us Dead. He had to get that house and he had to make it look like he was a success. So he put on the shirt and tie and suit every day and went to the train station even though he didn't have a job. He said to me, you're a bitch as well as a witch. She didn't mention her father. She didn't mention John or Fred. She just said, I just have a feeling that something bad, you know, is going to happen. I think he planned it. He planned for me to see that. Because I would see a loving father. And so when they went away, there would be like no questions asked. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. And this is Father Wants Us Dead a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and The Star Ledger. It's early October 1971 at Breeze the stately mansion on a hill in Westfield, New Jersey. While his family sleeps, John List sits in an old recliner in the parlor. He's right next to the grand but empty ballroom, though it wouldn't remain empty much longer. His eyes are closed, but he's very much awake. He's obsessing over the avalanche of problems he's facing, silently praying, talking to God, weighing his options. If I just abandoned my family, that would be traumatic, especially for the children, but also for Helen and mother. Helen would never be able to take care of the children, especially without any income. He needed a way out of his unraveling life bankruptcy, foreclosure, and a family he thought was straying from God. And he kept coming back to just one solution. He would send them all to heaven by killing each and every one of them. In this episode, Rebecca and I will walk you through step by methodical step of one of the most gruesome, tragic, and utterly baffling crimes that ever struck New Jersey. And at each turn, When you think this can't possibly get any more heinous or bizarre, John List takes yet another horrific step forward. So we want to say right here that this episode has a lot in it that's not easy to hear, or easy for Rebecca and me to tell. We've spent more than a year immersing ourselves in the lives of Alma, Helen, Patty, John, and Fred. And it was hard to go through these police reports again and see each family member's final moments, you know, who saw them last, not knowing it'd be the last time. In this episode, we're trying to understand the precise flow of that awful day. And the details are undeniably brutal. It was the meticulousness of John List's crime that even veteran investigators said they'd never seen. As former Westfield Chief Barney Tracy put it, List was that kind of man through it all, an accountant. John List planned this. He planned it. He did everything. You know, the ledger was balanced for him. He's an accountant. He balanced the ledger. And for him, it was okay. It was good. We're good. I can do this. We know from police reports that November 9th, the day of the murders, starts just like any other day. List's alarm wakes him up at 5.30. He makes eggs for breakfast and gets the kids off to school a little after 8. 
the milkman delivers five quarts to the refrigerator a little before nine. The List family owes him $177, but instead of a check, he gets a note List left, canceling delivery until further notice. With the milkman gone, List knows he's now free to set his plan in motion. In his memoir, he says Helen comes downstairs, grabs some coffee and toast, and sits at the table. This scene of Helen doing this normal, everyday thing we all do, you know, pouring coffee all bleary-eyed, it's a reminder that she's just like all of us. And okay, maybe she was flawed, and was she mean to John List? Sure. But this is a woman who's had a tough life, and she's dying, and she's been his wife for nearly 20 years, and none of those things matter to John List in this moment. Because he's made his decision, Rebecca. He goes to the garage and puts two old pistols in the side pockets of his green army field jacket. He says in his memoir that he took a moment to review what he had to do, knowing that once he started, well, there could be no turning back. I took a deep breath, walked into the kitchen with my hand on the cold grip of the stire, moved up behind my wife, pulled the pistol out and fired into the back of her head for instant effect. I stepped back as her disease ravaged and now dead body slid silently, sort of in slow motion to the floor. This is all he really says about Helen. He doesn't even talk about how he feels about killing her. It's like he's just 100% focused on what he has to do next, which is kill his mother. So he rushes upstairs to Alma. She was making toast and greeted him with a kiss, which he says makes him feel like Judas, because yeah, he should. She asks him about the loud noise, and he says he doesn't know what it was. And then, he shoots her. Here's Barney Tracy again. And he actually shot his mother in the face. I think in his statements, he said he shot her in the back head. But I think he shot her in the face. And then, um, he left her because she was too heavy to move. He left his mother up in his third floor in like a, a nightdress and in this contorted position. Very cruel looking thing. I mean, the pictures of it are just cruel. I mean, you just shot your mother to death and you, you couldn't give her some comfort or some, some dignity. In his memoir and confession letter, List claims to have shot everyone from behind, so they didn't know what was coming. But as the reports of the autopsies confirm, this isn't true for all of his victims. And Rebecca, you and I have talked about it, but this is a good time to make it very clear. This book List wrote is self-serving. It's his version of things, what he wants people to believe about what he did. It really says a lot about List, I think, that he even wrote it. It's like O.J. Simpson's hypothetical confession in If I Did It. And like Simpson, List even did interviews, including with Connie Chung and another show, American Justice. It's certainly not a new phenomenon, killers writing memoirs because they can't resist editing their own story. States like New Jersey have even passed laws so they can't profit from their books. I guess I do think there's value in hearing from him at times, but everyone should know we're not taking his word for it especially when there's evidence to refute his version. 
And that's the case here, because according to police reports, List shot his mother in the face, near her left eye. And he left her there, knees bent back under her body, and just shut the door and left. Because there's so much more on his to-do list, Rebecca. That includes cleaning up. He doesn't want the kids to come home and see what he's done and know they're next. So he drags Helen's body to the ballroom, lays her out on a sleeping bag by the door, and starts painstakingly mopping her blood from the kitchen floor. I had to mop the floor three or four times. And because we had no mop ringer, I had to wring accumulated blood out of the mop by hand. And while it's totally gruesome work, he's unfazed. And more than just unfazed, actually, he's also worked up an appetite. And what happens next is perhaps the one single detail that I just cannot get over. In the middle of his mayhem, with his dead wife and mother in the house he's cleaning, he decides to take a break. And he makes himself a sandwich. At the same table where he killed his wife. How do you do that? It's completely bonkers. Completely. When Connie Chung asked him about it, he answered simply that he was hungry. One of the people I talked to about this was William Wertheimer, a Westfield resident and now a retired Superior Court judge who would later become involved in the List case. I had to bring it up to see what he made of it. And he cleaned up and all that and made a sandwich. That's the one that gets me. I think in between Helen and the kids coming home, he was hungry, so he he made himself a sandwich. He had to to wait for the kids to come home, so he he was hungry, and that's what he did. That's what you do when you're hungry. You make yourself a sandwich. Make sure you don't spill anything on your tie. I mean, it really is incredible. In his memoir, List explained his lunch break as training from the Army, where he learned to eat or sleep even in unpleasant moments. And List was also matter-of-fact about his actions when he described the day to Stephen Simmering, the psychiatrist we've heard from before. List was just taking care of business, tying up loose ends in between the killings. He had to do a lot of planning, because you don't just wipe out a young family and not leave a trace. So he had to make arrangements with the neighbors. He had to stop the milk. He had to uh, write to the school on a pretext that the wife's family, there was illness in the wife's family in North Carolina, and the family would take an extended trip to North Carolina for that reason. He was ready. All the details, almost all the details, had been taken care of. And the remaining details were taken care of between the murders. Literally, they went to the bank. He kind of schmoozed with the bank manager. He cashed some savings bonds, got some checks, but he did a number of logistical, practical things that he needed to do. Police carefully chronicled everything he did. He calls his boss to say he won't be in. School officials, the kid's part-time employer, and a newspaper delivery man all got notes or messages with the cover story. He also stopped the mail and at the bank, cashed Alma's last $2,000 in savings bonds and made sure the teller calculated the interest rate. There are discrepancies about the order of events that day. John List says he ran these errands before he began killing his children, but the records suggest otherwise. 
What we do know is that shortly after noon, as the bodies of his wife and his mother begin to grow cold, John List is reloading his gun and preparing to kill the remaining members of his family. His children. I experienced no qualms or feelings of remorse, only what might be described as an elevated level of consciousness as I moved on to implement an action plan that had developed an irreversible momentum of its own. It was like I was on some sort of cruise control and had no choice but to finish what I had started. Police learned from interviews that Patty signed herself out of school at noon, saying she had cramps, and then she walked to Duke's sub shop downtown. An employee she was friendly with told police she was there until about 12.30, and then he overheard someone say to her that her father was there to pick her up. And that was the last anyone ever saw of Patricia List. John List drives her home, parks the car, and they walk in together. And as they walk from the laundry room to the kitchen, he fires a single shot into the left side of her face, killing her instantly. He drags her to the ballroom, leaves her on another sleeping bag near her mother's body, and cleans up again. Just like that, his only daughter, dead like all the other women in the house. John List's next victim is Fred. At this point, he's just 13, 5 foot 5 and 125 pounds. In photos, he looks a lot like his dad, certainly the same ears sticking out. He was at his after-school job at KMV Associates, where he and Patty both worked. The staff told reporters later that they heard Fred call his dad that afternoon and ask him why Pat never showed up to work. Within minutes, he trotted out to jump in his dad's car. At home, the boy and his dad walk in the back door by the kitchen. List points the gun at the left side of his son's face and shoots him once, killing him immediately. His youngest son is the easiest to drag to the ballroom. Picturing List driving Patty and Fred home that day, it's just such a seemingly mundane thing. If you're a neighbor, you're going to wave as his Chevy Impala rolls up the hill. But then later, you learn where he was going. To kill his children. It really has to do something to the psyche of a community to find out what happened, what a parent in your town could do. Like we said, it's hard to think about these things happening anywhere. And here it is in your nice suburb, this murder house. And not long after Fred's blood is cleaned up, List prepares to kill his namesake, 15-year-old John Jr. There are discrepancies here, too, about whether he picked up John at soccer or John was dropped off. But either way, his killing becomes the most brutal of the five that day. John Jr. placed two books and his gym bag on the counter in the laundry room. You can see these in the crime scene photos, Rebecca. He didn't even have time to take off his gloves or winter jacket before his father started shooting. List claimed he shot Jr. so many times because his son was moving and convulsing, but law enforcement sees it differently. He wasn't a little kid anymore, five foot nine and about 170 pounds, and they think he fought back. 
We heard from Jeffrey Paul Hummel in our first episode. He worked for the prosecutor's office trying to catch List. He described the vicious killing, and it isn't easy to listen to. Well, the kid tried to struggle and fought with him from what the crime scene indicated, according to the police reports. And then John became, I guess, enraged because he he put 10 bullets into that little boy. And that was the most that outraged anybody. I mean, the, the horrific murder of that little boy. And after his last son finally stops fighting, List lowers the two warm guns. In the time span of a normal workday, he has ended his family. He's finished what he started, or at least finished the hardest part. He grabbed John Jr.'s feet and dragged him to the ballroom with the others, laying him on the last sleeping bag and covering his bloodied face with a rag not bothering to clean up the drag marks this time. And how is List feeling? He says he felt only sated. Quote, something like the empty feeling left after sex. You would think that after actually going through with it, he has some sort of reaction. He says it was harder than he thought it would be. He says he cried or broke down. But there's just nothing. He can't even summon a real emotion. And then... The prayer. What do you say to God when you've just murdered your children, wife, and mother? Standing with my head bowed, I prayed these words. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray to you in the name of Jesus our Savior. Please take the family into your heavenly home. They are also innocent in this matter. I then recited the Lord's Prayer. And then it's over. Well, the killings are over. But we know the nightmare hasn't even started for Westfield, where the sense of safety is about to be shattered by this news. For the loved ones who are still a month away from learning the truth, the answer to why Patty hasn't sent a postcard from her supposed trip to North Carolina, why the phone at the List House just rings and rings. After saying his prayer, List gets back to his plan. He cleans his pistols, packs his bag, and writes letters to leave behind, including his chilling confession note, which we'll get to just a bit later in this episode. He also has another call to make, Jess, to get the cover story out to the Bader family, who they carpool with. The person who answers the phone is actually one of Fred's best friends, Rick Bader. He asked to speak to my mother, who was not home. She was actually... at church choir practice. And he basically said he was calling to let her know not to pick the kids up tomorrow. Um, that they, you know, he he had sent them down to the Carolinas to uh, see their grandmother who, who was ill and he was following in the morning. And they would call us when they got back because they weren't really sure when they were coming back. And finally... At the end of his very busy day, List eats dinner, goes upstairs, switches off the light, and turns in for the night. Just like any other night. Even though there are now five dead bodies in the mansion with him. Barney Tracy said even a writer of horror novels could never dream up a villain capable of such savagery, but also remain so calm and controlled. But this guy was in perfect control. 
and he knew he had to eat. He knew he needed a good night's sleep. And I, mean, I don't know about anyone else, but sleep is not always easy. <laughs> um, even, you know, without guilt or whatever. But I would think after what he'd done, I don't know that you could ever sleep. I guess that's why most people who kill their family kill themselves, because they can't live with it. But he knew he had to sleep, and he knew he needed a good head start in the morning, and he ate again in the morning and then left, which is, it's incredible. As we've said before, we tried tracking down over 100 people for this project and cold called many of them 50 years after the tragedy. And we learned memory is a funny thing. Almost everyone seems to remember things a little differently. As journalists, Jess, we're used to fact-checking. And there were some things we were told that we're not including because they were not supported by the facts. Not necessarily because someone was trying to mislead us, but because what they believe happened after all that time may not actually be right. We say all this because we need to talk now about how the list bodies were discovered a month after the murders on December 7th, 1971. And we're gonna stick to what was in the police records and officers' trial testimony. That's right, Rebecca. Which means we're not going to rely on the version told by Ed Iliano. Patty's drama coach, who was at Bree's Knoll that night. A lot of what he said about how the bodies were found has been dismissed as the product of a melodramatic mind. Although he swore that Patty warned him her father said he would kill the family, which isn't that far-fetched given what we've heard from Patty's other friends. But he also said he discovered the bodies on his own. That authorities don't buy. People told us Ed Iliano was rather dramatic and unorthodox. And I do wonder about this guy's imagination. You know this, Rebecca, because we both watched it on YouTube, but he made a movie in the early 90s called The Patricia List Story, where he played himself. It was really weird. Yeah, it basically portrayed Patty as sex-crazed and in love with him and forcing him to take part in sex rituals. I wish we could ask him about all this, but unfortunately, Ed and most of the people who discovered the crime scene have died. That also includes the two officers, Charles Haller and George Zelesnik. A second drama coach who was there, Barbara Sheridan, is alive, but understandably, after what she went through, didn't want to talk to us. But Jess, we have talked to another civilian who was in the house that night, the List's next-door neighbor, Dr. Bill Cunnick. Christmas was getting closer, but as holiday lights were going up along Hillside Avenue, the lights inside the List Mansion were flickering off, and Dr. Cunnick noticed. Gradually, over a month, I think of November, the lights were going out here and there. I guess we should have been much more alert, but we weren't expecting anything like this, mind you. I had no clue that it was about to produce the result that would. Ed Iliano told police he noticed the lights too, because he was driving by the mansion repeatedly, uneasy about the family's absence. Earlier that day, he had tried to convince police something was wrong, 
an officer made some calls, but wrote in a memo he didn't have backup to go check the house. Later that night, the drama coaches went to the List house themselves to investigate. Dr. Kunick and his then-wife hadn't seen their neighbors in a month. And now it's 10 o'clock at night, and they see a strange car in the driveway. So she calls the cops. When the two officers arrived, the drama coaches and the Kunicks all expressed their concern for the List family. And this, Rebecca, is how the bodies finally get discovered. Everyone was worried Alma List could be alone in the house and in need of assistance. And that was all the police needed to hear. The officers said they found an unlocked window on a side porch and crawled inside. And the drama coaches followed them in. I'm going to read now what Officer Zelesnik wrote in his report so you can picture it. Quote, I noticed that the interior of the house was cold. The first floor was in darkness, except for a light reflection from the second floor. There was soft music playing from a central intercom system. The house appeared to be in neat order. However, there was a faint, offensive odor. Zelesnik wrote that there was dried blood in the pantry and marks on the hall rug, as if something had been pulled across it. Quote, I was then joined by Officer Haller and Mr. Iliano, and he led us through the living room, opened the drape, and exposed a large, dark room. I flashed my light into the room and observed four bodies lying on the floor, covered with blood and all of their faces hidden from view. The thermostat had been turned down, and that had slowed the decomposition, but it was clear they had been dead a while. With backup on the way, Officer Zelesnik searched for the two missing family members. He opened a door off the kitchen on the third floor and found 82-year-old Alma, dead, crumpled on the parquet floor. Back downstairs, Dr. Kunick entered and saw the scene in the ballroom. He immediately thought of a time months earlier when John List had admitted to difficulties at work. Here's more from our conversation. I mean, I know you were a doctor, so I'm sure you've seen a lot of things, but did it really impact you to see these children lying there? Yes, yes, it can't help but that. You keep wondering if there was anything you could have done or could have said. But he couldn't really have known Rebecca because List didn't let anyone in. No one really knew him, never mind enough to see what was coming. Yeah, and really all there was was Patty kind of signaling that something was wrong. I asked Rhonda Hanson-Conway what she thought when Patty said John List wanted her and her brothers dead. She said her initial reaction was, no way, that's crazy. But then she started to feel afraid for Patty. She looked in the mansion windows, but she still didn't know if there was anything to do. She couldn't tell her parents because she wasn't supposed to be hanging out with Patty at all. I was hoping nothing had happened, um, but I was worried. And I don't know if I even entertained the thought that he had done it, but uh, I, um, it didn't, I, I, didn't feel, I didn't feel right about it, you know. You can see why no one went to police about it, definitely. Either what Patty said was so vague it hardly registered, or it just seemed so crazy you couldn't believe it would really happen. And you also have to consider the culture back then, the keeping up of an outwards appearance and the privacy of the north side of Westfield, 
This is an era when police are not rushing to meddle in domestic situations like these, not without any real concrete signs of trouble. Right. Nowadays, we're more of a see-something-say-something culture when it comes to warning signs for violence. I mean, every time there's a mass shooting, everyone is talking about the warning signs and what to look for. But psychiatrist Stephen Simring told me if List had walked into his office before all of this, there wouldn't be any big warning signs. I never in a million years would have predicted that he would have killed his family. Never. Among the detectives who were called to the List house that night was Robert Kenny. We heard from him in the first episode. Remember, this was Westfield, a quiet town with well-to-do people and minimal violent crime. So he said when his lieutenant called and told him to go investigate a house on Hillside Avenue with five homicides, he thought it was a joke. I said to him, okay, you can knock it off and tell me what you really want. And he explained that, uh, well, if you don't get up there right away, you're fired. So I figured he was serious and I went up. When he got there, the officers briefed him on what they had discovered, and he went in to look at the crime scene. And they said I could go into the ballroom, and uh, there was uh, Helen and the three kids were there on the floor by the fireplace, towels over their heads, and they were on sleeping bags. I, I mean, I'm sure you've been on a lot of crime scenes, but... Was there a different feel on that crime scene? Yeah, well, it was it was a shocking sight to see. You know, somebody that would take and kill his whole family and disappear. There's a diagram of how the bodies were left that Kenny and another officer drew, as well as the crime scene photos. The three children were lined up, with Patty and Fred on their sides facing each other. John Jr. was on his back, his hands in gloves resting on his stomach, the sides of the sleeping bag wrapped around him as if to keep him warm. Helen's body was perpendicular, about a foot above her children's heads, closest to the door, her arms stretched over her head. You can see some of these photos on our website, but honestly, I would think twice before you do. I was in our office when Westfield Police sent over the photos and documents we requested. The photos are disturbing. There's no better way to put it. And not just the ones of the bodies. There's the drag marks, the bullet holes in the wall. But it's also heartbreaking to see the photo of John Jr.'s math book, which he had doodled on. He left it on the counter next to his soccer bag just before he was shot. And John List left all the bloodied rags in paper bags on the floor. They soaked through until the blood trickled out in a stream across the kitchen tiles. It's hard to look at those pictures, too. We don't know why List put four of the five bodies on sleeping bags. But we do know why he left the lights and music on, and why he turned the thermostat down to 50 degrees. He told a psychologist he didn't want the oil to run out, or the pipes to freeze. Since the bank was foreclosing on the mansion, he didn't want to cost them any more money if there was damage. I can't believe he's worried about the bank after what he has done to his family. And he was also worried about break-ins. In that interview with American Justice, he said he hoped the lights and music would deter burglars. And on top of all that, Jess, 
he also left behind stuff for the police to find in his study. There are notes taped to the desk and filing cabinet drawers, like he leaves the guns and ammo in a drawer labeled guns and ammo. One note directs them to a locked filing cabinet where the letters are all in a manila folder. One is a note about a $500 loan from his boss. The others are brief apologies to relatives. And then there was the letter that to this day, people find completely mind-boggling. The confession letter. He wrote it to his pastor, Eugene Raywinkle, and all the seminary training in the world cannot prepare you for this night. Being called to a mass murder in a mansion, and the police chief hands you this note. Dear Pastor Raywinkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least possibly understand why I felt that I had to do this. 1. I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. 2. But that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. Three, with Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Four, also with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon. But when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutsi wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least that I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated. Please see to it that the costs are kept low. For mother, she has a plot at the Frankenmuth Church Cemetery. Please contact Mr. Herman Shelkus. He's married to a niece of mother's and knows what arrangements are to be made. She always wanted Reverend Herman Zender of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he's not well. Also, I'm leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. Mrs. Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Mrs. Eva Meyer, Helen's mother. Jean Seifert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, 
I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way that I hoped that they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how can anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. One other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know even at the last second that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees fit. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. We've read that letter what feels like a million times, Rebecca, but it's different to hear it like that. And I still can't believe how bothered he was by Helen not going to church. Your wife is so ill that she can hardly leave her bed. And you're like, well, if she doesn't go to church, the kids will obviously stop going and become heathens and be damned forever. He can't see their faith. All he can see is church attendance, being in that pew. And the way he talks about being poor, like he couldn't possibly put the kids through the horror of government assistance. When I talked with Dr. Simmering, he said Liz saw being on welfare as basically sinful. That idea of poverty as sinful was something that Barney Tracy, who grew up in Linden, found especially offensive. I mean, I understand that people can, um, you know, have a lot of reasons to do bad things. But I mean, this guy, he had everything any man ever needed in life. He lived in a home in Westfield that he could have bought my whole block in Linden. And, and if, if you're in trouble financially, sell your house. Come live with us, poor folk. You know, just join us. And, you know, we go to church, but we take care of each other. So different. So um, twisted. You know, like it's such a perversion of Christianity. And one other thing, Jess. I still can't believe that Patty's interest in acting is so egregious to him that it even makes this letter. And yet... He didn't mention anything about Patty dabbling in witchcraft. Are we supposed to think he didn't know about that? I'm not buying it. I think he knew. He said that bitch in a witch thing in the police station, and Pastor Raywinkle swore in court that he had discussed Patty's interest in witchcraft with List. I think List was just so embarrassed by it that he left it out. Yeah, because we should remember, just like that memoir, this letter is not necessarily 100% John List truth. Right. He wants people to read it and say, 
he thought he was doing the right thing by his family and as a Christian. And can you imagine what it was like for police to find this letter? I mean, this is already a crime scene like no other. Five bodies, all women and children, plus the sleeping bags, the music, the blood streaming from these paper bags on the floor. And now you're reading five pages of the killer's handwritten declaration of how he did it and why. And there's also the fact that this letter is dated. November 9th, 1971. These bodies have been here for 28 days. The man the cops are looking for is 28 days ahead of them. And in the next episode, John lists escape and how he somehow slipped out of one life and into another. He really wanted to be you know, undercover, unseen. He didn't want to cause any tension to himself. Yeah, you never know who, who your neighbors are anymore. If John List had attempted to try and disappear into the fabric of society like he did in 1971, 50 years ago, I think it would have been utterly impossible. He meets clearly the criteria for obsessive compulsive personality. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music. And Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malock. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.